fuck those guys. I, I cannot believe you're on the podcast with them. They, you have one podcast. It's ours. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Enslicht. Mickey, scale of one to ten, how mad are you that I did a live stream without you? Um, in reality, I'm not mad at all. I, I, I'm happy for you and uh, the fine folks at Very Bad Wizards. But, you know, I feel like even me saying that I'm not really angry is 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 revealing, uh, you know, the facade. Uh, you know, I get I pretend to get angry with you on uh, on Twitter and uh, with uh, David Pizarro and Tamler Summers. But uh, in actuality, uh, it makes me happy that you're, you know, uh, on there, you know, spreading the four beers pod gospel to another audience. So thank you. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. And I will say that we had some fans there uh, among their uh, the Very Bad Wizards crew. So some of the folks in the chat in this live stream were talking about how they enjoyed the show, uh, asking about specific episodes. Of course, the generalizability crisis episode came up. So when everybody wants to talk about so, uh, you know, our, our people are out there. It made me happy. Oh, that's awesome. That, that does make me happy. Uh, so we you know, some of our listeners were, were going in on that live stream knowing that you would be there. Awesome. Well, thank you, uh, you know, uh, your listeners for doing that. That's 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 wonderful. Um, and man, it's true, right? The generalizability crisis episode. That one keeps on giving. Uh, we still get letters uh, uh, on that one uh, regularly, right? I know. I, I feel like I should send Tulsa some ice cream or something to say thanks. Yeah, or 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 maybe send him something he dislikes because we're we're having to like uh, support his argument uh, more and more. <laughs> <laughs> right. Box of snakes, Tall. Check your mail. So, Tall, if you get a package from Toronto, it could be ice cream or it could be a box of snakes. One of the two. Only one way to find out, man. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I feel that, you know, we should maybe just, I, maybe it's something we should start doing more regularly, but I feel we should just state what the date is. It's April 19th, 2020. Um, and given... Uh, like our strange world, the strange, like, what is it, five or six weeks now that we've been in lockdown? Um, kind of uh, self-isolating, I feel uh, it's, it adds context uh, to give flavor to like, you know, the, you know what we're saying, because uh, we're in a very different world now than we typically are. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, especially since these, we have occasionally not released them in the order that they've been recorded in. So then I think it's useful to give listeners some idea of like when, when in time this is happening. So, right. Um, before we get to, I, I always want to write, jump like right into what we're doing and I'm controlling myself and saying, Hey, we had to talk about beers first. So should we talk about beers? Yes, let's do that. I'm glad you remembered because I would have, I've already been drinking. So, uh, thanks for the reminder. So I'm drinking, um, Actually, this is a beer that Alexa Tullett introduced me to many years ago now when she was still a, I guess she was a graduate student here. I forget if it was on one of her visits. I forget now. Um, anyways, it's uh, called Canuck Pale Ale. It's from Great Lakes Brewery. And uh, it's a hideous name. And I don't even like the graphic uh, on it because it's like a, you know, essentially like a Canadian lumberjack with, you know, a lumberjack shirt and, you know, a typical uh, stereotypical kind of Canadian um, on a log. and uh, But the beer is surprisingly good. Um, so I stayed away, away for it for many years because I, I couldn't stand the, uh, the, the, the image and the name, but it's actually a really good beer. So thank you, Alexa, for, 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 for recommending it all, these, all those years ago. Nice. Just to be clear, the guy is standing on the log? Yeah, he's standing on... A, actually, it looks like he's kind of surfing on a log. It looks like... <laughs> yeah. He's I, I, maybe you've never seen this because you're not you're, you didn't grow up in Canada, but um, I remember growing up you'd see that they had they had these kind of like contests for lumberjacks to like yeah to, to cross a river that had a bunch of logs on it and of course they're turning and it's very slippery and, and mostly you just end up in the water so it looks like kind of something like that but he's just surfing a big log with a you know uh, he's like a Paul Bunyan looking character 
um, with a big axe on his on his you know shoulder, uh, looking majestically Canadian. Yeah, you're you're right that where I grew up in Santa Barbara, California, there was sort of a dearth of lumberjack contests. So I I really feel that this is a like a gap in my cultural knowledge. Actually, <laughs> let's get nothing wrong here. I've never witnessed this ever myself either. But I you know I'd watch the CBC growing up, and you would see commercials that had th- these kind of images. Um, um, and occasionally you'd see some sort of like these contests being aired on TV. It is true, but never never with my naked eyes have I ever seen anything like this. Um, okay, so I today am actually drinking a nicer beer. Uh, this is a Chimay, which is like a Belgian uh, Trappist ale. This was a gift from uh, a German student who came and uh, worked in my lab for a bit. Her name is Gabby Waldhof. So thank you, Gabby, for the beer. It's It's been in there probably like the better part of a year. But it's still good in in their meaning in the fridge. Um, it's great actually. It is nine percent, so skin uh, is dangerous, especially for mid afternoon. But it is delicious if you like your Belgian style ales, which I do. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. Uh, the, 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 it's a you know a listener donation. Or actually, is she a listener? No, I don't think she listens. But thanks anyway, Gabby. <laughs> right. Thank you, anyways. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. So, Mickey, I guess. We wanted to talk about today in in different ways, uh, psychology and coronavirus, right? And we've touched on, I guess, in in more recent episodes, just because it's what's going on in our lives, um, you know, how this has been affecting us a little bit. But I think we wanted to talk more about that today, right? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, this is our um, it's a mandatory COVID episode. Um, well, like you know, you know, uh, psychology in the time of COVID, because I mean. Kind of feels weird to pretend as if you know things are the same, and and yeah, we've kind of touched on it a little bit. We've mentioned how we're you know in, in self isolation, and you know when we sp- spoke to Josh Tiber, of course, we we spoke about you know pathogen and pathogen avoidance, you know, quite explicitly, but we didn't really talk about our own experiences and also kind of the what's going on in psychology in the past, let's say four to six weeks. So yeah, we thought it'd be a nice idea to kind of um, yeah talk about our what's what's going on with us. Um, so do you want to you want to start us off, UL? Do you you know what 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 is what has your life been like? How, how have things been for you? Well, you know, so this is something that I don't say too loudly. Um, I'm in a very fortunate position. Um, I don't have kids. Uh, my research doesn't necessitate a lot of in person interaction. You know, as opposed to let's say if I were doing a lot of physio work. Um, and uh, you know, I'm financially secure. I like most of us faculty, we, we don't have to worry, at least in the short term, um, about uh, pay cuts, layoffs, et cetera, right? So for me, this has been, you know, obviously there's some like existential anxiety and I worry about my parents who are older and in California and so on. But from just a productivity perspective, I actually feel like this has been pretty good. Like I don't really have to go anywhere. I don't have to do anything. The weather hasn't been nice, so I don't really feel like I'm missing out on being outside. So I kind of like... I. I work a lot and um, I actually haven't minded it yet. Now, granted, it's only been a month. And if it were, you have to spend the entire summer inside, I damn sure would mind that. But for now, I feel like it's kind of kind of been good for productivity. Hmm. So you're like you're exactly the person that uh, some people despise online. Well, yeah, I suppose they do for lots of reasons. <laughs> well, just because I do, there's this, you know, in our little, you know, little corner of Twitter, uh, social media psychology, um, you see, the, it, it seems like there's like a two two camps, really. There's the one camp, which you just described of, you know, um, you know, not having children uh, seems to be a, a, a defining kind of a division line here. Um and or having maybe children that are of a certain age, uh, and which uh, one group like yourself is you know kind of finding themselves with a lot more time and able to be productive. And I think our our work anyways lends itself to kind of working at home. Like I work at home normally three days a week, and I'm sure you do as well, um, or a few days a week. And so this is just kind of more. Uh, there's more time that's uninterrupted for you in some in some ways, and you can actually be potentially more productive. 
Um, but then, of course, you've got another group of people, uh, and I would put myself in that camp, although I don't have it, I don't think, as, as, as severely as some other people, where you've got, you know, uh, I've got two children, two young children. Um, my wife uh, uh, is at home as well. Um, now, not that our house is small, but it's not huge. And we're all trying to manage in this one space. And we're, you know, my job is still a full-time job. And my wife uh, is a therapist and her practice has moved online. She's definitely taken a hit uh, in terms of the number of clients she sees per week, but she's still working. Um, and then it becomes quite difficult to manage, uh, you know, the, my kids, right? My kids are supposedly, you know, being schooled. I mean, so the first few weeks, uh, there was nothing for my kids and we just had to kind of did stuff for them. We were quote unquote homeschooling them, uh, which amounted to like finding a couple of things online for them to do, giving them workbooks, but really not doing much, man. I'm not a teacher. I mean, I should say I'm a professor, but that's amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. hilarious. Uh, I'm a different kind of teacher. I'm, you know, di- you know, I'm not teaching these kinds of things. Um, but that, that is hilarious. I actually don't identify as a teacher. Um, but uh, but now they're actually in school. Uh, you know, their their school's kind of gone online. It only gives them an hour a day, though. It's only an hour of online. You know, I think only about thirty to thirty to uh, sixty minutes of you know with a teacher every day, um, and then a lot of you know work on your own. Um, so it's definitely uh, shifted. You know. It's definitely been more difficult for me. It's been more challenging, but I don't think I have it nearly as challenging as some other people I've seen, um, you know, online. I think if your kids are like below four or five, I think it must be really, really difficult. Kids are really, really dependent on you. Um, they can't really do much on their own, um, and that's just a full time job. So I'm, I'm not sure how one could manage uh, taking care of them and, you know keeping at the same pace, uh, never mind increasing your pace. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I do say that, uh, well, first of all, it's not like I'm on Twitter being like, my life is great. Lockdown's amazing. Um, you know, I, and, and I say that now knowing how lucky I am, right. Uh, to not have to, um, worry about young kids to not be the caregiver, maybe for an older parent. Some people are in that position as well. I know like all of those things are, you know, make your life much more difficult and complicated. So I'm kind of in the ideal position to, I guess, in some ways benefit from this. I suppose that one thing that comes up kind of for everybody is how do you kind of maintain a routine of productivity when your usual routine is like blown away, right? So I I used to have on my non-campus days, a routine of like, I would work from home in the morning, then I would have lunch, then I would go out to a cafe in the afternoon, then maybe I would see friends in the evening. So it kind of felt like I had these kind of markers throughout the day. And and now obviously I don't have that. So I'm curious how you're dealing with that problem in particular. Yeah. Um, well, so, I mean, I mean, it, to be frank, I don't think my life has been impacted that, that much. I, I've seen other people whose lives seem, you know, far more impacted. And I say that because, again, two or three days a week, I was kind of doing what I'm doing now. The only difference being that I have other people with me. I have my kids with me. I got my wife with me in, the, in the, at home at the same time. But I'd have days where I'd just be at home and I, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't get dressed uh, other than just sweats and I wouldn't even leave the house. So I, I have that, but it's, it's forced. And um, it, it, the, the big difference is, yeah, I, I'd like to go to coffee shops. I'd like to, 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 to walk around freely. I'd like to go to the park. Um, and I can't really do any of those things now. Um, so that's been difficult. But, um, you know, I don't think it really hit me until, till maybe the, like, la- the, the, this past week. But I, I, it ha- the, the past week, it started getting to me. Um, the, the kind of feeling of claustrophobia a little bit. This feeling of, you know, always being together, always being with my family in our house. And... Yeah, there's more conflict. More conflict started arising uh, between uh, my, my kids are, are are fighting quite a bit. They're having trouble getting along. Um, I mean, even at the best of times, they're conflict prone. Um, but there's more of that now. And then there's, I think, more conflict between you know uh, my my kids and 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 us as well. Um, and you know, some of it you you know you, you try to like just be understanding, right? You're like, yeah, this must be really difficult for them, like not seeing their friends, not having their freedom, not having their routines, not having, and they don't have the words to express what they're feeling necessarily. Um, 
but yeah, you know, kids are a bit more ornery, a bit more difficult. And um, yeah, at some point I just started, I, I just started feeling really bad, really started feeling really guilty that, um, man, that I'm fucking up, man. I'm doing the wrong thing that I'm not, you know, getting into fights that are unnecessary. Um, and maybe I need to be more um, forgiving of, you know, the kinds of trouble that are, you know, kids are going through right now. Anyways, I, I, a lot of stuff has come up with my relationships in the past week that has been, you know, frankly difficult to manage and quite, yeah, it's made me sad. And because I've been kind of still working, uh, you know, not as not as much. I've got to do a lot more stuff for the kids and stuff, but I've been mostly trying to just get in my regular work day. Um, but now I'm, I don't know, I'm feeling that that's a mistake. I'm feeling like I need to be, spending more time with them to help them cope with the situation. So, um, yeah, this past week, the different kinds of feelings and emotions have, 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 you know, popped up in me, um, than happened, you know, the first, let's say month of the, of the, of the lockdown. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I have a couple reactions. First of all, like, I think you need to cut yourself some slack. This is tough for the adults too. Right. And, and so losing patience with young children <laughs> under the circumstances doesn't strike me as uh, a terrible failure. Um, and then, yeah, man, if you need to like just ease off and work for a little bit um, in order to spend more time with the kids, it seems like why not do that, right? Like I keep working because I like it and because it's something to do and otherwise I'd just be bored. But if you don't – if you have something else to do and you don't have to work right now, why why not just take a week? Yeah. I mean I'm – you know, I think it's like, you know, split motives. I mean – I like work too, and I like like what we do, and, and I do have, have, a, have a sense of response. I feel a sense of respons responsibility for some of these things, and of course, in some cases, I owe people work, students especially. Um, but it's what I like to do as well. But at the same time, like I've got competing values: the the, the value of work, which I truly enjoy, then the you know the welfare of my children and their education and, and their well being. So, and I feel I've been. Uh, weighing too much the, the, the first and not the second. But I, I hear what you're saying as well. Kind of give yourself a break and don't, um, don't try not to be so hard on yourself. But yeah, I feel, yeah, th this week things came to a head for me. And, and yeah, it was, it was definitely more, more challenging, more difficult. Um, and I know I'm not alone uh, w with this. Um, I, I want to read a, a, a tweet uh, that really spoke to me and, 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 Maybe you well. You can tell me later if we want to cut it out if it's if we're invading on this person's privacy or something. Um, uh, so this is uh, tweeted by uh, a a professor of psychology at Northwestern University named Claudia Haas, um, and she wrote, uh, "Right now, I am failing at everything. Failing as a parent, partner, researcher, friend. The list goes on." But somehow failing as a parent hurts the most. I have some trust that I can repair the other failures. With the kids, I'm not so sure. And I don't know, it just, yeah, got to me. That, that really spoke to me. Like, man, like, reprioritize. Figure out what's actually important here. And um, But you always end up feeling like you're letting something go that's important. And um, anyhow, it's it's been a challenge. Yeah, man, I feel like parents give themselves such a hard time and yeah, kids are resilient. Like, <laughs> they'll have forgotten about it in a year, you know. I, I don't know what qualifies me to give parenting advice. I'm like, yeah, you know, they'll, they'll, <laughs> I mean, that's they'll my, live. That's my hope that they, for, for, you know, forget some of the stuff. But, man, kids remember the, the, the things, like, they remember all, you don't know what they're going to remember and what they're going to forget. And some of the things that you just gloss over and you're like, ah, whatever. It, it surfaces, you know, a few years later, they're like, oh, they remembered when I was a dick then. And they're carrying it with them and like, fuck, man, I wish, I wish I could take it all back. Um, so, but of course, then they also forget some of the other times you were, you were a dick or, uh, and they also remember, you know, a lot of the good times too. So, but yeah, I, I think I, I, you know, thank you for being, uh, for validating my feelings as a, as a parent, but, uh, yeah, it's challenging. Any, anytime. So, uh, you know, if you compare it to being alone, let's say hypothetically, you're, you're living on your own and you're just, by yourself for this month, Do, would you prefer that? You think? No, definitely not. Definitely not. I think it would be a lot harder. I mean, you know, I think it would be nice to have a, 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 the breaks, um, and you know, I can get that. You know, so I'm actually not someone who I I, I like to be at home, but I don't necessarily need to be alone. 
Um, my wife, for example, she needs like some alone time. So she'll just go for walks on her own for like an hour or two or go for a drive. Um, not necessarily get out of the car, just to get some space. Um, but I, 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 I'm happy that I'm here with, uh, with my family. How has it affected the research that you guys are doing in the lab? Is it like full steam ahead with the usual projects? Has it changed things for you? Uh, yeah, no, no, it definitely has changed. Uh, I mean, we had to abandon, uh, over half our projects. Um, I mean, abandoned, maybe that's too strong of a word. We had to put a pause on, on, you know, yeah, two thirds of our projects because they're in lab studies and not ones that necessarily could be, uh, transferred to an online setting easily, uh, or some of them could be, but they would take significant programming and we're just kind of waiting for that programming to happen. Um, but yeah, I definitely had to drop a bunch of studies. Um, and that's, I mean, it's sad for the students and that, that, that will, uh, I don't think it's going to affect them too, too much because there, a lot of my students have a bunch of studies going on at once, so they can just do other, other things. Um, but yeah, absolutely, it's affected uh, the kinds of work we can do. What about you? Um, it has not really affected us that much. So some of the students are actually busier because some of the TA work is harder to do online. So for example, if students want to come in and look at their exams after they've taken them, normally it would be like 20 of you crowd into this room. And now it's like, I have to meet with you one-on-one. -on -one. I don't, the TAs do, meet with them one-on-one -on -one over the phone or over Zoom or whatever. So that's actually quite time consuming. Um, and so that's been kind of busier for, for some of them. If it's just grading or whatever, then it's just about the same. Uh, but luckily, the projects that we're doing in the lab, we don't depend on in-person data collection. Right, right. But um, I mean, now we have this massive, I don't want to call it a confounder, but this massive context effect, right? So, you know, we, we've talked a lot in, uh, uh, in the show about, you know, generalizability. And I mean, we are living in special, special times. It's possible that these special times are going to be the new norm. Um, I, you know, at least some version of this will be the new norm. Uh, but it seems like, you know, the re regular psychology is going to be different, right? It's going to it has to be, be impacted by this massive change in our, our behaviors and our expectations and our fears, the media we're consuming, everything, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, that is a concern for some of our stuff where we're looking at science and technology attitudes, right? So biomedical stuff, for example, vaccines, for example, um, all of that stuff you could see being affected pretty dramatically by what's going on. Yeah, poor anti-vaxxers, yeah, anti right? I mean, I feel the worldview is, uh, is, is going to crumble now. You know, I've been reading their rallying, you know, their uh, Bill Gates is uh, there's there's conspiracy theories about Bill Gates and that he created this in order to force vaccines on everybody. So I feel like they're gonna, they're going to be just fine. Um, yeah. Uh, poor researchers, on the other hand, who are asking people about their attitudes about, you know, uh, science and medicine. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That could be uh, we could see really different results in in this. So we just ran a study last week. Right. And it could be that it really doesn't look at all like the stuff that we've been running previously. And there's no way to know whether it's COVID effects or something else, some combination. Yeah. So it could be bad. Now, are you doing anything specifically taking advantage of uh, COVID or, or, or anything, you know, looking at the effects of COVID in particular? Um, so we, I am, uh, we have a project, which I, you know, this is a load of questions as you know, the answer, because you're yeah, I set you up. I say you because I'm on the project, <laughs> but I just thought it would be a nice setup. It is a nice setup. Um, yeah. So, uh, we're on a project, um, where I think like a lot of people in that first week, we are like, oh, this is interesting. You know, I don't, I don't like to use the word opportunity, but there's an, something is happening here that's major and important and, uh, it's impacting every corner of the world, um, let's examine some sort of psychological response to it. And so we kind of started working on it and on, on a project and it's kind of rushed together in some, in some ways. But I think at one point, um, we kind of all took like, you know, a pause and being like, what, what are we doing here? Like what, what we're not, you know, pandemic researchers. We don't study health. We don't study mental health, you know, at least direct, not directly. And we started kind of just wondering what, what, what we were doing with, you know, with the study. So anyways, nonetheless, we, we still, you know, ran this study. I believe data collection is more or less over. Um, 
but uh, we haven't uh, we haven't really started looking at it yet. So I'm not sure what, if anything, will will come of this. Um, Are you sensitive at all to these? You know, I've been reading some sentiment about like, oh, it's this bandwagon jumping. Everybody's now got to do COVID research. You're just like chasing the headlines, that kind of thing. So, am I sensitive to the 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 reaction to it? Do you mean? Yeah, like does that. Does that bother you? Do you think there's any merit to it? Is that something that you worried about when you were thinking about, like, should we do these studies or not? Um, no. I mean, if anything, I think my, my response is very similar. I'm like, why, why, is, why are we all doing this? Like, and, you know, and this will maybe like a good segue to the, you know, the main topic of, of today's show, which is kind of like, what can psychology do in, um, in, the, in, 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 in a, in a time of a pandemic, uh, in the time of a plague, um, but I started just wondering, like, am I even helping here? Can I help here? And why me? Why me? I'm a, I'm a self-control researcher. I study effort. I study uh, self-regulation. And I could stretch and, 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 and make a case for it. But it, it, when I started looking at what we actually designed as a study, it was these were mental health questions. These were questions about feelings of well-being and, and, and feelings of loneliness. And like some of my students are interested in like bits of that, maybe the loneliness bit. Um, but at some point I was like, I don't know. Yeah. Am I just trying to take advantage of some opportunity, uh, thoughtlessly, um, kind of not really, um, I wasn't sure anymore what, 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 what the point was. I wasn't really sure why, what, what answer we were going to get that we didn't already know and why, how this was even related to COVID directly. And also why us? Like, why not other people, you know? Maybe happiness researchers should study this, not us. So yeah, I started having misgivings, and then I started seeing this kind of pushback uh, online, especially about um, uh, about this doing this kind of work to begin with. But nonetheless, you were like, "Well, we have something important to add here. We're we're going to do this study." Yeah, this, you're really pushing here. <laughs> no, you know, I, I think at some point I was like, I wasn't sure anymore. And I'm like, but well, we already designed this study. And uh, let's just, okay. I mean, there are actually some interesting questions in the study for that I'm interested in. Like, so I'm really interested in uh, feelings of fatigue, feelings of depletion, like feeling like you can't do anything anymore. And uh, I noticed, I'm not sure if you share my intuition, Yoel, the first week of the, the lockdown, I was exhausted. I was like, I, I felt I was like rushing to do a lot of stuff, getting my classes online, creating new, new, new routines for myself, you know, figuring out what to do with the kids, designing this study. Um, and I was like drained. Yet I was physically inactive. Um, you know, uh, yes, I was cognitively active, but like, I'm not sure if I was any, any more active than at other times. Anyways, it's just, but it's, I felt exhausted nonetheless. So I was, I started becoming curious about that. Like what leads to the feeling of exhaustion. And, um, so I started asking and probing, you know, possible correlates of those feelings. But again, that's, that's not necessarily a question of COVID specifically. It's more a question of what contributes to these feelings, which I'm, you know, that's a question that I am interested in. Um, so I, 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 in that piece, at least I felt authentic, but some of the other pieces less so. It seems very natural to think like either um, this is this big event that has implications for the thing that I care about. So why not take advantage of that big event happening in order to test some interesting question? Or my research really speaks to something around uh, how people are going to be reacting to this, uh, maybe to the policy response that governments might have. Um, and so what I want to do is some sort of research that might hope to inform those people who are who are trying to make policy, for example. So I guess what I, I wouldn't call it the main topic um, because I feel like the main topic is us. And what's been going on with us? But um, but one thing that we did want to talk about is like, well, to what extent is that is that true? Like, what do we have to add? And you know, what what should we be thinking about in terms of like critiques of maybe we're not the right people to be speaking up at this time? Like, is that a point of view that we should be taking seriously? That says, hey, just go away and let the medical professionals do their job right now. Right. I mean. That is for sure an intuition that I have had. At one point, um, I was yeah. Even when I, even before I started seeing people write about it, and we'll you know talk about one of that one article in in, in particular. Um, but I started wondering, like, like if I'm speaking or people you know psychologists are speaking, 
and people are listening to us and what we have to say is not that good uh, or not that useful, like are we, you know, there are opportunity costs to listening to us. And instead, listen to listen to people know what they're talking about, you know, in this about this. So that would be epidemiologists, people who are experts in public health, people um, uh, who, who can, you know, can help uh, uh, communicate about COVID. And one could argue that's maybe a role for psychologists, like the psychologists do play a role in communicating the risks involved in, uh, you know, something like a pandemic. But that might be the only piece where I think psychology really ha- or behavioral science in general does play a role. But at some point, I was just getting like, I, you know, I think a related a related point is, you know, about a week or two after all this started coming out, you started seeing all these calls, grants calls, people, you know, funders in Canada and everywhere in in the world were rushing to get research on COVID done. And I think that's great because we want to we want to figure this out and solve it. But I'm like, let the, 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 the biomedical people get all that money. They're the ones who should be getting that money. Don't give any money or hardly any money to someone who's going to do some tweaky little intervention that who knows if it's going to move the dial or not. Um, I mean, for, you know, for a real intervention to, to move the dial, I mean, I want it to be really, really good. I don't want it to be a subtle port of intentions to engage in this behavior. I want it to be some direct measurement of that thing. I want it to be like airtight kinds of studies. And that's not kind of, those are not the kinds of studies that we're seeing out there. Um, so I feel like if, if we're just going to offer, like, I think surface level kinds of solutions, um, let, let the adults talk, <laughs> you know, um, I just yeah you know that's that's funny because I'm I I feel sympathetic to that point. Um, at the same time, so much of controlling this is behavioral, right? You need people to change their behavior. You need to, them to stay in. You need them to wash their hands more. You need them to avoid social contact. So you might say, man, behavioral scientists, they should be out front here. Like this is our time to shine. Like we need to large scale change behavior, and we should be really involved in this conversation. Yeah, I don't know. I'm yes and no. I mean, I think uh, in terms of communicating about you know, what, what are the best ways to persuade people, for example, to uh, engage in certain forms of behavior. Well, there's like a lot, a lot, decades and decades of not just research, but good research um, showing how what, what's the best way to persuade people. Um, you know, talking about norms, talking about, you know, research from the elaboration likelihood model about, you know, who who's communicating the message and what sources of information they're, they're providing, etc. So I do think we have something to say there. Um, and I think we should listen to, to people who are, you know, to some extent. Um, but I feel there are also, we make the, we end up, making these claims that are overblown. We end up looking at like, you know, not necessarily small end studies, but we end up conducting these studies where we've got, for example, we might have an idea for an intervention. Which kind of uh, message is most likely to get people to engage in, in, in a behavior that we deem positive to prevent the, the spread of COVID? And one way of doing it, and I've seen a few examples of this now, is to give a little, you know, give kind of uh, messages and tweak, you know, a few of them around different parameters, doesn't matter what the parameters are, present this to like a few thousand people, and then measure intentions to engage in behavior that's consistent with the social distancing. Um, and to me, those are kind of really shallow studies because um, we don't actually care. And this goes right back to the generalizability crisis issue. We don't care about any one operationalization of an intervention. We care about the construct more generally. So we might care about, you know, framing X in X kind of way. And, and X could be anything. Um, but then we have exemplars of X. Right. Well, you need you need to have you need, you need to have a good you know uh, array of exemplars of X, and I'm I'm trying to avoid specifics. So I don't want to point fingers at anybody, to be honest. Um, but what I'm seeing instead is like you know one version of X, one version of an of, a, of an intervention, and then looking at people's self-report of whether they intend to engage in some behavior, um, and. Like, okay, well, you need generalizability at the level of the IV, at the independent variable. You need generalizability at the level of the dependent variable. And you also want something probably that's a bit better than, like, what people say they might do. Um, so it just, I don't know, it doesn't seem, like, super impactful to me. But maybe I'm, I'm, being, maybe I'm being unfair. Um, what do you think about that, UL? 
I mean, maybe you could say actually behavioral science is not super well suited to in the moment trying to generate new knowledge. Right. So what we might be able to say is to go to policymakers and say, like, hey, based on our decades of research, here are some things to try. But right now running the study, that's like we're going to try these like three different messages to get people to wash their hands. If we don't, if we can't actually see what they're doing, right, if we're like relying on like, well, how much do you intend to wash your hands in the future? You might be like, oh, it doesn't I don't I don't know what that really tells us or that doesn't seem all that useful. Um, so I feel like we've really like dived in uh, to the the papers here, and we should we should build in a little bit of a break, right? Um, how's your how's your beer situation there? Yeah, that yeah, it's running low, and I could do do for a refill. Um, yeah, let's take a little break, and then we'll uh, we'll pick it up. Hi there, listeners. Yoel here. Just wanted to let you know that this week we're being sponsored by the Great Courses Plus which is an incredible resource, particularly in these times where we're all spending a lot more time indoors. So with The Great Courses Plus, you can continue exploring the world and keeping your brain engaged. They have a course for basically every curiosity, from hobbies like playing guitar, practicing yoga, or doing magic, to classics like history, science, and literature. One course we can recommend is The Great Ideas of Philosophy, which is a thorough introduction to the Western philosophical tradition. So using the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen to courses anytime. You can even stream videos to your TV to watch as a family or to keep the kids learning while they're home and out of school. Now is the perfect time to start with the Great Courses Plus because they're giving our listeners this limited time offer. If you sign up now, you'll get a free month trial of unlimited access to the entire library. But you have to do that using our special URL. That URL is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers. So thanks so much to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring our show. Remember that URL for your free month of unlimited access is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers. Now, back to our show. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. You can DM us. You can at mention us. That will uh, go to both of us. We both check that account. If you'd like to email us, you can email us at fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Again, that will go to both of us. Finally, our webpage is fourbeers.fireside.fm. You can listen to our episodes there, and you can also drop us a line there using the contact info form if you like. Finally, if you are enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast directory of your choice. It helps people discover us. Mickey, do you have anything else to add? No, that's good. I think uh, we'd just like you guys, uh, you know, uh, listening and tell all your friends and family if you like what you hear. So keep doing that. Uh, we appreciate it. That's right. We'll, we'll take just regular word of mouth, too. So as far as beer talk, um, it's going to be quick because this Chimay, it's uh, kind of intense and I haven't finished it yet. So I'm still drinking the same beer. But I feel like I deserve like at least beer and a half credit because it is 9%. I, I'll give it to you. I'll definitely give you the credit. Um, and that's just the normal. I, I'm bumping everybody up, you will. You know, you know, during this uh, pandemic Oh, times, I see your <laughs> This is pandemic curve. Exactly. Happening. My students, you know, are more likely to get A's. You're more likely to get, you know... Uh, a credit uh, for drinking one beer. I'll give it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not sure. I, I am not finished my uh, Canuck Pale Ale. Uh, and I'm not feeling a second beer just yet. But I, I brought a uh, brought a can of a second beer just in case. This is from Bellwoods Brewery, my favorite brewer in, uh, I mean, actually, period, my favorite brewer anywhere. Um and they happen to be in Toronto. Uh, this is a, a beer called Cat Lady, which I believe we've we, we've had once on the program before. This is a double dry hopped IPA, seven point two percent, and uh, we'll see. I'm you know I'm, I'm doing the thing that psychologists uh, of a certain age do, you well, for the first time, and that is I'm going to be baking bread after after this show. <laughs> yeah. If there's anything more cliched than uh, COVID psychology study, it's COVID bread baking. That's right. I never, never, ever made a bread. This is not a sourdough, so at least I feel that is uh, different. But uh, you know, I've, I've I've set the uh, the dough has been rising for about twelve to eighteen hours now, and um, 
I'm looking forward to my first loaf. We'll see what it's like uh, after the show. Amazing. Well, we are, we're all excited to hear about that. And I think the podcast account uh, needs to have some pictures tweeted out of <laughs> yeah, the I products. Yeah, I suppose. Um, so we'll see how it goes. So the, the idea that we, um, we had starting, like when we were talking about this episode, was uh, we wanted to talk about this paper by Stuart Ritchie, um, which we both ran across, I think, independently a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's provocatively titled, Don't Trust the Psychologists on Coronavirus. Um, and the argument that he makes here is essentially that uh, psychologists don't have a lot of authority to talk about this stuff at all. And then he gives quotes from some columns that in retrospect seem really misguided that are like from February and are like, why are people freaking out about the coronavirus? People are wrong about their risk perceptions. People over respond to stuff that's scary. And his point is, look, you know, psychologists don't really have anything useful to say here because they were so comically wrong very recently. And maybe that's a... Maybe I'm caricaturing his point too much. Maybe that's an unfair characterization of it. What do you think? No, I think that's a, a, a completely fair characterization of it. I mean, again, I know that uh, writers don't pick their headlines, um, but that headline is, you know, that is clickbaity, right? Don't trust the psychologist on coronavirus. Um, and again, he didn't pick it. Uh, or at least I don't think he picked it. Um, but that is a fair summary of, of the article. Um, and I should say that, you know, you know, just let me start from the bat. I like this article and it, it, and, and it, it agreed with the kind of a feeling that I was having as well about like, you know, we should be shutting up. We should be like taking a back seat a little bit and let other people talk, uh, who are more of an, who are more experts on some of these things than us. Um, so I really, really uh, agreed with it. And in fact, when I saw it, and I think it was like a day or two later than, than most people in seeing it, I retweeted it um, with a quote, uh, a juicy quote from the article, um, which is, let me see if I can find that quote, because it really is uh, quite provocative. Um, so here, here's like the, 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 the final two uh, paragraphs. Um, where they tried to be counterintuitive, for instance, arguing that people are wrong to find a global pandemic frightening, they simply end up embarrassing themselves, or worse, endangering people by having them fake uh, make fewer pandemic preparations. And they, as psychologists, I don't know why he's saying they, because he's a psychologist too. Um, this isn't to say that psychology isn't useful when it stays in its own lane. So that resonated with me. Um, it'll be important to ensure that as many people as possible have access to psychotherapy for the mental health effects of the pandemic, for instance. Um, and, and I want to get back to that point because I've seen surprisingly little from clinical psychologists talking about, you know, COVID responses. And to me, that is probably the area where we can contribute the most. And maybe it's because I'm not in clinical psychology Twitter. I don't know. But I've seen remarkably little. Um, uh, but that's a secondary effect of the virus. My argument here is that psychology can, can give little reliable counsel about our immediate reaction to the, to the pandemic. Uh, psychologists should know their limits and avoid overstretching results from their small-scale studies to new, dissimilar si situations. Decision-makers should, before using psychology research as the basis for policy, know just how weak and contentious so much of it is. I mean, not this is hard-hitting, right? No holding back. Um, and, everyone, and everyone else should stay at home, wash their hands, and beware of psychologists bearing advice. Um, so he's also, you know, a clever writer, right? I mean, he's just, he's, he's just a really good writer. Yeah. 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 You do have to like that line. Um, so I, I mean, I read this piece when it came out, I reread it today. Um, and I, I remember finding it, you know, amusing and clever and being like, wow, that's, uh, uh that piece didn't age well. And now that I'm rereading the piece, I'm like, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't know if this critique is is entirely fair. So if you look at those early pieces, one from David DeSteno, one from Cass Sunstein, who, by the way, is, is not a psychologist. He's a he's a lawyer, but he, he writes a lot about um, about behavioral research. You know, they kind of started from the assumption that coronavirus was not such a big deal. Like kind of previous disease scares uh, like SARS or Ebola that, that sort of, I mean, Ebola obviously in Africa killed a lot of people, right? So I don't want to minimize it. But as far as people in the West, 
didn't have dramatic consequences, right? And in the U.S., you saw people flipping out about like three people in the U.S. have Ebola, right? Um, and in that context, I think people and not just Desteno and Sunstein, but like lots of, you know, experts, lots of biomedical experts, lots of epidemiologists, lots of mainstream science journalists came at this from the angle of this is not such a big deal. Right. That was the assumption. And then if you write a piece that proceeds from the assumption, this is not such a big deal, then I think it makes perfect sense to talk about the research, how we often overreact to things that are scary. I do think that's true. I don't think that's just a few flimsy lab studies. I think that's generally a fact. The thing is, in this case, the thing was genuinely scary, right? But that was hard to see at the time. And it's not like DeSteno and Sunstein were the only people who failed to see it at the time, right? Everybody failed to see it at the time. Like world governments, um, world governments, national governments the world over failed to see how dangerous this thing was at the time and were really slow at taking the steps that they they needed to take in order um, to contain the spread. So to say like, well, this is the fault of psychologists, it's like, that seems a little much to me. Like we were wrong, but so was everybody else or yeah, yeah, nearly yeah. everybody else. Yeah. So I actually, you know, I, I also reread it today uh, to remind myself of it. Um, and I I think I, I agree with you. So for first, I I feel he was too loose by blaming psychologists because sometimes he wasn't even blaming psychologists at all. You already pointed out Cass Sunstein he's a lawyer um, or, you know, a, you know in, in, in highly influential in, in behavioral economics, um, which he was very quick to say is just psychology, which I think a lot of us say, but it's not exactly psychology. It's also economics. Um, you know, uh, John Ioannidis, who is a, is, isn't he an epidemiologist? Uh, he's a medical researcher. I don't know exactly what area. Okay, right. But And it was highly influential, especially in the open science movement. And he also made similar claims, pushing back on fears and, you know, it's probably not going to be so bad. So I felt he was very quick to kind of like point to psychologists and not not recognize a lot of people were getting this wrong. So I completely agree with you there. Um, and I also agree with you that, you know, it's easy to, to, to look at this stuff after the fact. You know, after the fact, they're like, "Oh shit, this is terrible. This is this is a, a catastrophe," and then everyone who was saying it wasn't, they're 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 bound to be wrong. And you can count, you know, many different professions, not just psychology, in there. So I, I feel that was that was a bit unfair. Um, but that being said, I feel the fact that psychology uh, and psychologists could have opined and had reasonable things to say, or maybe reasonable sounding things to say, no matter which way it goes, that's not a positive for psychology, right? I mean, that's unfalsifiability. That's like, no matter how it goes, oh, this is why. Psychology could explain to you why this happened um, after the fact. Um, but we're actually pretty, like, ineffective at making predictions. Um, so... Yes, he's picking on stuff after the fact, but I, I'm not sure it's completely unfair. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So, like, I think it's it's fair to say in, in a way almost more damning that, like, forget about the replicability of this research. Like, let's say the research is really solid. You know, whatever the conventional wisdom is, you can write a think piece sort of buttressing the conventional wisdom with psychological findings. And at this time, it happened to be that the conventional wisdom was, oh, look at these people flipping out. Uh, this isn't such a big deal. Uh, they're overreacting, right? That was definitely like January, February. That was early February. That was like kind of the mainstream <laughs> mainstream media. I sound like uh, <laughs> I sound like such an intellectual dark weber. But it was like I, I tweeted out yesterday. Uh, I, I found this great uh, piece by um, I think she's a sociologist, uh, Zainab Tufnicki. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Anyway, and, and she documents just how much it was kind of the um, the accepted wisdom that people were flipping out, and that if you were taking this seriously or preparing for it that uh, you were a paranoid overreactor. And it's like, wow, that ended up being really wrong. Right. So like that was in the air. That's what everybody believed at the time. And so then psychologists or psychology adjacent folks came along and wrote think pieces about, well, here's how our research shows how this might happen. Right. And it's not like that research is false necessarily. It's just it doesn't inform us about how seriously should we take the threat of global pandemic. And it doesn't uh, tell us, hey, maybe we're really underestimating this threat or or at least the people 
who did, I'm sure people do research that are like, look at, are people good at predicting sort of these nonlinear growth patterns? And I'm sure the answer is they're terrible at it. And you could have written that piece too, right? Um, people are underestimating this because they're terrible at, at uh, estimating what exponential growth looks like. I think Richie mentions that briefly. Um, but then, you know, in an alternate universe where this turned out to be no big deal, you'd be like, uh, the, those, can you believe how wrong those folks were? Paranoid freakout, right? So I think it's just it, that when you're like, what is the right response to this sort of a unpredictable global threat? Psychology doesn't, can't, shouldn't be able to tell you anything about that, right? Sort of yeah. a normative question. Right. But just like, you know, as you're talking and as you're kind of thinking about all this stuff, this is a uh, uh, famous article written in the 70s during another one of our crises, a crisis of confidence in the 70s, um, describing psychology as history. Psychology is merely kind of detailing perhaps the psychological effects of, of, of certain historical events after the fact. But and, and, and I can't help but think that's what's going on here. And because history has had, you know, occasions where we have overreacted, um, we can bring about quote unquote psychology that explains that. Um, we've also have uh, events when in, in, in history when, when we've underreacted and the psychology could potentially describe or, or quote unquote explain what happened there. But in actually making predictions and actually helping policymakers know how to act, it, it does, it seems, it seems rather limp. It doesn't. It doesn't. It seems uh, impotent. Um, maybe that's too strong because I, because I think you know maybe in the communication realm there could be some things we could we could learn from psychology. Um, but what I've seen so far, not not so much. Well, so I think this is a great transition um, to the other paper that we wanted to talk about, which is a, a preprint uh, from Jay Van Bavel and a whole bunch of people who I'm not going to name. Apologies to everybody but Jay Van Bavel. That's trying to do exactly this, right? It's trying to give policymakers some empirically based recommendations and trying to be careful about saying, you know, where do we know? Where are we fairly confident? Uh, where are we less confident? Like how... Um, Robust is the set of findings around this particularly particular uh, message. Where might there be conflicting findings, and so on? And, and I think, like, admirably, pretty careful about making those claims, right? So it doesn't make these big overclaims. Um, so, what did you think of this paper, Mickey? Um, yeah, so this is a, an article yeah, written by Jay Van Bavel. We should mention one other author, which is uh, Rob Willer, one of our former guests. Um, so I think it was uh, Jay and Rob's uh, kind of brainchild. They they thought of you know ways to help, and uh, they 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 recruited like a huge team of of, of really experts in very various uh, you know different uh, domains in psychology, um, and quickly put together this this article. And apparently now it's accepted in Nature Human Behavior, so it's a very you know prestigious. Uh, um, journal. Um, I've got mixed feelings, uh, as, as is typical. Um, my prior was to dislike it, um, mostly because I, I, you know, I've seen a lot of rush to 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 to, to do things, and I and I don't feel what I've been seeing has been that effective or potentially that helpful. Um, and then when I really skimmed it before, kind of giving a more thorough look, I was like, oh, this is just a textbook. It's kind of like lifting things from textbooks that could apply in this and that situation. And like, how useful is that? But then I read it. And I do think in certain cases, there, there's, you know, this is this is useful. Um, I think it can potentially help about communication and messaging around uh, around the, the pandemic that could potentially be helpful. Um, but that might be as far as I go. I, I also see some some things I dislike about it. But maybe before we get there, uh, what what did you think of it? Yeah, I so I'm focusing here on on box one, which is sort of the the key insights for public health experts, policymakers, and community leaders. Social scientific insights for COVID nineteen pandemic response. Point number one: a shared sense of identity or purpose can be encouraged by addressing the public in collective terms and by encouraging us to act for the common good. Now, that seems plausible. Like, I buy that. Do you, do you need research to, to come up with that? You know, um, let's see. Um, what else? Uh, 
Norms of pro-social behavior are more effective when coupled with expectation of social approval and modeled by in-group members who are central in social networks. So there's some jargon there, but basically that just says people are going to do things when they think other people are going to like them for it and when high status group members do them. It's like, yeah, okay, I, I believe that too. Um Let's see. Uh, 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 messages that one emphasize benefits to the recipient. Two focus on protecting others. Three align with the recipient's moral values. Four appeal to the social consensus or scientific norms. And or five highlight the prospect of social group approval. Tend to be persuasive. That seems like kind of kitchen sink, you know. And some of them, like if you're like you have limited space in the message, it's like, well, should I be emphasizing benefits to the recipient or should should I be focusing on protecting others? It's like, well, see, well, they they all kind of work. So like, I guess. If I have a critique, it's that, well, these things seem sort of obvious. Is that unfair? No, I don't think that's unfair. I mean, so there are some sections that one could ask, is this even psychology? Right? So they have uh, a section here on, um, you know, social inequality. And to me, it, it, it's simply statements of fact, you know. People are unequal. Uh, uh, you know, there are, I mean, have unequal circumstances and resources. And some people do have running water and electricity. Some people don't. And it's kind of just highlighting all the inequalities out there. I'm like, okay, sure. What do I do with that? How do I message people based on that? And it, like, where's even the psychology in there? You know? Um, so that's kind of, yeah, I, I didn't get that. I, other than like signaling, that seemed like signaling to me um, that we're, oh, don't worry, everyone. We care about social inequality uh, as well. But it, it just, there was no instructions about what to do with it. Um, so that, I, I didn't like that. Um, there's a section on, um, uh, you know, again, a prejudice and discrimination, which I think there really is a, a, a salient uh, case here because I think there's going to be a lot or potentially a lot of uh, derogation of certain outgroups, especially Asian, Chinese uh, members of our communities uh, who are seen, uh, you know, as, you know, kind of the bringing in the virus, at least in certain circles. Um, so... Uh, but again, even that section, it, it kind of like we've we've already seen instances of of of, of hate towards hate acts towards Asian Asian communities. Uh, so it wasn't clear what this was adding, other than highlighting this is possible. Um, so yeah, so I, I I didn't like some some of those parts. The, some of the other parts I, I was a little bit less also less enamored with were there's a whole section here on threat and how we perceive threat and how we act, um, and essentially and it boils down to some fear is good uh, to respond to a threat, but not too much. Okay, so that's good. That seems like a good message, but again, because our theories are so limp and so imprecise, it's like, well, how do I know what the sweet spot of fear messaging is? How do I know and where I am on the curvilinear path here? Am I too much? Am I too little? Am I just right? You don't know until after the fact, and there's no. I mean, I didn't see clear instructions about how to um, how to differentiate between those two. Right. So even if you ask a very straightforward question like, is it more likely that people will take this too seriously and overreact or not seriously enough and underreact? I don't see how you answer that because you could be like, well, you know, people focus on these things that are scary and they change their behavior out of proportion to the magnitude of the threat. But then you could be like, people have optimistic biases. They don't think bad things are going to happen to them. Therefore, they're not going to take the right precautions. It's like, well, okay. So you basically have no answer for me is what you're saying. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like I, I feel torn, I think maybe in the same way that you do. And I feel like this is an admirable goal that these authors have. And I do think they tried their hardest with some maybe digressions into like this uh, discrimination or, or like uh, the uh, disadvantages faced by minority groups are bad. Kind of like, yeah, where's the psychology there? That, that, that was weird. Um, but overall, tried to do their best to um, summarize the research, but you're kind of at the mercy of, well, if the research doesn't tell you things that are non-obvious or useful, then your summary isn't going to tell you that either. Right. And I I wonder, what do you think about this? So there were, I don't know, have 40 some odd authors, um, many of them eminent, uh, very respected people I like. Um, do you think this document would look different 
if we had another 40 set of authors, also eminent, also likable, also, you know, you know, responsible, etc. Do you think this do- document would have been, comp- and obviously there'd be, you know, some differences, but do you think it'd be wholly different? No, I don't think so, because I, I think what they're doing here, um, like you said, it's sort of a textbook, right? They're they're summarizing the kind of like state of the art of what we know. Um, and I think lots of people could have written this piece, and that's not a diss on the people who did. Great. I'm I'm glad, actually, that they are doing that. And it is a little – I, I do feel like it's kind of a service to say, like, well, we're just going to summarize what's known, right? So, like, we've complained about people self-promoting and being like, oh, it's, you know, it's my work that's really influential here. And it's like, to their credit, that's not what the people here did. They just kind of talked about what have we found out, right? So it's it's kind of telling us what the field thinks. That's how I think about it. Right. See, I'm not sure. So I, I, I think if we had picked, uh, you know, another 40 authors, I think we, we would have picked different things to talk about. I mean, for for certain, there would have been other uh, some, you know, um, the two documents would have had overlap, maybe even substantial overlap. Um, but I think, uh, there, so for example, if I was an author, I would have made sure to include a section on self-regulation and self-control. Um, if you were an author, maybe you would have talked about technology and, uh, you know, and our, and our attitudes toward technology. And, I, you know, and you could have drawn a logical argument about why that was critical or somewhat important for responses to pandemic, as I could have done. Um, and to me, again, maybe I'm wrong about this, and maybe the documents would have looked, you know, largely the same. But to me, that that's that speaks poorly of psychology right it, it means that like we can make our research fit like you know no matter what research you do you know more or less um you can find some extension uh listen we were all you know we've all um been writing grants for our entire careers and what do we have to do in grants we have to say how important it is for you know, an issue at hand of the day and this is clearly critical, uh, critically, very, very important. And we can find ways to kind of twist and turn our research to make it relevant for, uh, for, for, for COVID. Yeah. You know, I take your point. I, I don't think that's wrong, actually. Um, is that problematic? I mean, it's, it's kind of, it, it might be because COVID and the societal response to it is so broad that it touches on so many aspects of human behavior that you could plausibly say loss of research on human behavior is in some way relevant to it. And then I guess it's a judgment call of saying like what's important versus not, um, which I suppose is less clear than in like, you know, biomedicine, for example, where you're like vaccines, relevant, <laughs> cancer, less relevant, you know? Um, but that uh, to me, that's like just the irreducible squishiness of um, studying human behavior uh, and and not really the fault of our field. I don't see even in a field where we're able to make much more precise recommendations. I don't see how you get around the problem of a big like society-wide event just touches on a lot of different psychological phenomena. Yeah, that's fair. Maybe you're right. Maybe like maybe uh, we have legitimate insights in many of us and that are not not necessarily overlapping and and they can be useful. I mean, maybe that's fair. I mean, it just strikes me that like a document would be very different. Imagine you had like a group of epidemiologists got together, forty eminent epidemiologists, and then you got a second group of forty ep- epidemiologists. I would bet those documents would be largely overlapping, and they would be consistent. Um, and because again, we're maybe because we deal with psychology is broader and it deals with so many things, uh, maybe by definition, then there's so many pieces of, there's so many ways to cut that pie and there's no one way to do it. Right. Right. That's, that's kind of, um, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Epidemiology, just especially in this particular context of infectious disease, it's, it's a smaller area, right? There's less terrain. Um, I feel like what we're saying, the subtext of all of this is why the fuck weren't we invited to be on this page? <laughs> That's exactly the message that, you know, there's only one thing that, you know, our listeners get from this is like, why were we not invited to this? Because we could have written a paragraph and got a nature human behavior publication like that is it's all jealousy. That's right. Rob Willer, you dick. We had you on our podcast. You don't even invite us to be on your paper. What the fuck, man? Yeah, that's hilarious. Um, But I mean, you know, I shouldn't maybe like, you know, uh, one thing we haven't touched upon, um, which I think 
you know, speaks to, you know, related to this and other projects is I think a lot of us, many of us, like we want to do something, right? We want to help. We want to contribute. We want to be effective. We, we want to make the world a better place in even a small way. And this is one product of that is like coming together and giving advice. And even if it only helps a few people, uh, some policymaker somewhere, um, that would be good. I, I, I believe I, I saw on Twitter that Jay Van Bavel, again, who's the lead author and, and, and a friend of mine, um, he spoke to the World Health Organization about this paper. Um, and to the extent that there's actionable advice from this paper, uh, that's a good thing. That you know, it, it, I, I would think that's a good thing. Um, so, and I applaud the, the, the authors for that. Yeah, that's right. And the instinct to get involved and to want to do something is 100% understandable. Yeah, but I, yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, like, I think we've all had that instinct, or many of us. But sometimes maybe the instinct needs to be met by, you know, with like, maybe I should do nothing. Right. Or maybe I should, I don't know, mm, donate to a food bank or try and help in some other way that doesn't have to do with my professional interests. Right, right. Yeah. So help my neighbors do something that's, you know, tractable like in a local way. Go grocery uh, shopping for your elderly neighbor. Which for right. all we know, Jay Van Babel's out doing that like five times a day. I'm sure he is. Knowing him, he's definitely doing that. Um, so I totally like laud the spirit of this. And, and, and I don't want to like, you know, put this this paper under, under the bus or anything like that, because I think there, there are things in, in here. Um, but I mean, can you like, what, you know, if you're a policymaker, knowing very little about psychology, um, is there anything you would take away from this, like as actionable advice? Uh, man, that's a difficult role-playing exercise. You know, I, I'm, my intuition is that a lot of people would look at the advice and be like, well, that seems kind of obvious. Mm -hmm. You know, the one that caught what I was surprised by was they have a section, uh, each section is very short, um, but they had a, a section on uh, disaster and panic. And that one I was actually surprised by. Um, so the idea here is that I think there's some sort of lay intuition that, and I've had this fear, um, that uh, there's going to gonna be looting and rioting and, and, and criminal behavior that could happen because of this, especially if, you know, uh, unemployment keeps on rising and especially this, you know, you know uh, last longer and longer and longer. There's going to be, you know, social unrest. Um, but apparently this is not a common thing during disasters. Uh, during disasters, it's... Uh, uh, people tend to act or in orderly fashion, and they tend to act in, in a cooperative fashion. Uh, they tend to uh, not think uh, uh, selfishly. So that was new to me. Yeah, interesting. Um, right. So I, I could see an argument being made for that. I, you know, on the other hand, like, it, it's just so hard to see if you're a decision maker, right? And you're like, okay, so you're telling me the general tendency is no riots, Maybe 10% of the time there's riots. Isn't it wise to plan for the possibility of riots just in case? Right. So, again, it just seems so hard to then take the step to like, well, normatively, does this mean you should do X versus not X? I guess it means like don't put tanks in the streets right away. But that's, <laughs> that's also kind of like <laughs> get there by common sense. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And even that, even this whole like people don't tend to panic. That's not that's not psychology. Is that psychology? Yeah, I, I, I'll give that to psychology. I'll give it to psychology. Okay. Um, so, okay. So we know for sure not to put tanks on the streets. No <laughs> tanks in the streets, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> so I feel we're kind of like uh, running out of time here and, and leaving it on a... Uh, ambivalent message here well um, i feel like i do want to say just positively about the paper i like i like how it's written i like that it presents the evidence in a, i feel a balanced way and its deficiencies are the deficiencies of the field not the deficiencies of the authors that's the, that's a great way to end it wonderful uh well thank you so much for listening mickey it was a pleasure to chat as always and talk to you guys next time 